Hey, fam. Good evening. Oh, my God. Good evening. There we go. Welcome to church, everyone. So happy you're here. So excited to be here. I'm feeling a little wild tonight, so watch out. Um, So if you are just joining us and haven't been here the past few weeks, uh, I realized somebody hadn't been here in a few weeks and hadn't seen Kevin in a while. Kevin is actually the lead pastor of this church, not the people who have been speaking the past few weeks, uh, just for clarification, it's not me. So my name is Angela, I'm one of the associate pastors here, and for the past uh, two weeks, this is the third week, we have been in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible, the book that we're all afraid of, and that's okay. Uh, We'll walk through it together. Um, We have been, the first, so the book of Revelation is many chapters, right? But the first three chapters are focused on these letters that Jesus uh, asked John to write, essentially on behalf of him. Uh, to seven churches, uh, seven Christian churches. Uh, And so it's Jesus writing these letters. And you'll notice that in Scripture, if you look in your Bibles, uh, the letters for the first three chapters, essentially, are all mostly in red. And so that's always a good indication to us that we should be paying attention. Even if you don't like the rest of the Bible, read the words in red. Uh, they They are for us the closest thing we have to what Jesus is actually trying to tell us, right? through uh, the Holy Spirit working through people like John, uh, who most assume wrote the book of Revelation. So the sixth of the seventh church, the sixth sixth church of seven churches, anyways, y'all get it. Um, English is difficult sometimes, uh, is what we're here to talk about tonight. And it's interesting because it's out of the seven churches, there's only two that Jesus isn't really upset with. And this is one of them. Uh, which should maybe alarm us. Uh, two out of seven are, the, are doing well, and the other one's not so great. Um, but so Jesus instructed John to write these letters and then actually carry them to the churches. So take them and hand deliver them along with the rest of the book of Revelation. So that's our plan for tonight. Does that sound good? Yeah? Wow, this is more enthusiastic than morning service. I like it. All right, Um, well, let's do a quick prayer to make sure that I'm not the one in charge up here. Lord, we thank you uh, for this opportunity. We thank you for everybody uh, who made it here tonight. We thank you for whatever is going on in their lives that they decided to show up to church, despite all of that this evening. Um, That means something, Lord, and I pray that that they realize that. Um, Holy Spirit, I ask for you to come and move and do, honestly, do whatever you want to do, right? Uh, Move through me, move through this space. Uh, This service is yours. In your name we pray, amen. So a few years ago, I spent a handful of months in Taiwan. And one morning, I woke up, and as I was about to get out of bed, the entire bed started shaking, shaking. And I'm from the Midwest, everyone, so my only experience to connect to what was happening right now is the movie The Exorcist. And so I lost my mind, and meanwhile, as I'm trying to figure out when I invited a demonic presence into my home, I I hear everything downstairs crashing, right? Plates falling, 
Again, this isn't even my house, and I'm very concerned. Um, everything is crashing in the kitchen. And then at the same time, outside within probably a two-block radius, we have all of the dogs and all of the car alarms going off. Everyone is losing their mind. And then, maybe 20 seconds later, silence. So still. So I, of course, run outside as fast as I can to try to form an allegiance with the rest of the people who were left behind. And... <laughs> And no one is there but me. <laughs> uh, painful, right? So I, I'm, I'm the only one. And you heard me right in the sense that I just equated my first earthquake experience with both the second coming of Christ and a demonic takeover. Because um, it was scary. But it was only scary for me. Everyone else in that town uh, just continued on with life because... Earthquakes were normal, I would come to find out uh, throughout my months there, but no one cared. It just kept going. And so as I was preparing for the sermon tonight, I couldn't help but think of Gong Fu, uh, because the church we're going to talk about tonight uh, also experienced earthquakes on a very regular basis. Um, the, the church is the Church of Philadelphia. And the origin of this town... Uh, the church was named after the town, of course. Uh, most people believe it was founded in perhaps 190 BC, and it was named by a man named uh, named by Attalus II, who was the king of another town that's actually a part of the Letters to Jesus, another one. Uh, and Attalus II had a really interesting uh, relationship with his brother. He was so in love with him in like a very brotherly way. He was just obsessed with his brother. And so, who was also king of another area, runs in the family. Um, but uh, so, this town was actually named after the concept of brotherly love, which is the same as our Philadelphia. Uh, so that's you're thinking right if you assumed that when you when you read this. He was obsessed with his brother, um, and this town or this place was really rich in agriculture, and it was. It's a set still on a hill looking over a valley, and the entire land was very volcanic, and so they had frequent earthquakes, so much so that they would completely devastate the land. Uh, historians didn't understand why people would live there, ever. Um, and so that was happening, and at the same time, the location of this place, of Philadelphia, was a prime location for trade. Uh, it was regarded as one of the best trade routes in Asia Minor during its time. So, so many people were passing through. They had the opportunity to meet people and to see people on a regular basis. Um, and this church was really, this city rather, was really created to be a catalyst for Greek culture, right? So we're in what is modern-day Turkey now. The city still exists. Um, not Philadelphia, but the city is still there, um, modern-day Turkey. And so they are told to continue to spread Greek culture and Greek language east, right? They have this opportunity, and because they're on a trade route, it worked out really well. They were able to influence some towns to the point where they forgot their native language and just started speaking Greek. Uh, that was the type of influence this, this city and this church had. The other interesting thing about uh, this passage tonight is this is the only time in we hear about the Church of Philadelphia. This is it. Uh, and there 
honestly quite small. Uh, no one really knows the origin. It's assumed that because Paul did such good evangelizing in Ephesus that people left Ephesus to come and build a church in Philadelphia. That would make the most sense to me too, um, but the origins really are a mystery. It doesn't really matter. Um, we know that they existed and we, we know that they were important enough for Jesus to write to, so they are important to us as well. And like I said, only two of the seven were faithful. And Jesus is really intense, right, when he's upset with you. Uh, And so it's nice to pick up this letter and see how happy he was to write to this church. Um, It's kind of like surveys, right? You only write if you're really angry or really happy. That's how Jesus is with these churches. Um, So we have to ask ourselves, why did Jesus choose to talk to this church instead of much larger churches? And why did he want us to know about them? What, what are we supposed to learn from this small church and with limited information concerning them? Uh, so in order to do that, we're going to read the letter. Uh, and I don't know how you all absorb information, but I'm visual in the sense that I like to actually imagine a place as somebody is talking to me. So uh, take this time to really try to visualize what Philadelphia looked like. Gorgeous, right? It was lush. And it was on a hill, and it overlooked this gorgeous valley. And you can imagine people going left and right, trading things. Greek is being spoken everywhere. You won't be able to understand anything, so it's fine. You can pay attention to me. Um, So that's where we pick up this story. And Jesus says, To the church in Philadelphia, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, and yet you kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my commands to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. And then he ends it the same way he ends all the other letters. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's break that down. Jesus starts this letter and makes sure that we understand that it is him. He calls himself holy and true. He wants no mistake as to who is speaking to these people. It's me, the holy and true one. The one who holds the key to David. uh, The key of David. And this actually is only the second time in scripture we see this, this phrase, the key of David, spoken. The first, he, Jesus is going all the way back to Isaiah and referencing Isaiah 22.22. Isaiah 22.22 says, And the key of the house of David I will lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So Jesus is speaking to these people knowing that they're going to understand this, knowing that they're going to see the connection. And I think it also gives more weight to this, this little 
book of the Bible, right, that these were actually words of Jesus. It's such a little nuanced thing that most people wouldn't pick up on, and the fact that it's in there is really important. And so this, this concept of the key of David is the idea, I mean, obviously when we talk about anyone having a key, that means they have access to this door, right? But when Jesus is saying that he holds the key of David, he's saying that not only does he hold the key and have control over the door, he's saying, I have what's behind the door. And what's behind the door? Treasures for you, specifically for you. And when I open it, no one can shut it because it is only for you. That's what he's telling these people. That's what they're going to hear when they hear he has the key of David. That's really important for us to know. Because he tells them, this is an open door that no one can shut. Uh, And remember when we said they were on a great trade route. You know, their first mission as a city was to be a missionary for Greek culture. And this is saying now your second mission is to make sure that you are a missionary for me and for the gospel. This door that I'm opening is a door that you walk through and you continue to move my name as far as you can. And he also says the church in Philadelphia is weak. It's little. It's not a big, wild church, right? But they remained faithful in the face of trial. And then, this is where Jesus gets Jesus-y. And he says in verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, most people, when they're talking about a synagogue, you know, maybe a synagogue that's not doing so great, they might say, well, that church, and then they've got some issues. Jesus isn't even allowing them to be called the church, the synagogue of God. He has named, renamed the entire thing for Satan. That means that God is not in that place. And the reason he's so mad at this church is synagogue life was not just this idea of you coming to a service on Sunday, right? It was your entire life. And this, this group of, of Jewish people did not like the Jewish Christians who were there. They did not like how they had become different. They were not allowed. They were kicked out. So that means not only were they kicked out of this space, they were kicked out of culture. Right? So now we have a group of people who see earthquakes on a regular basis, who've had life been, you know, completely devastated for them multiple times, and now they can't even participate in their own culture. And yet they were called to this place. A synagogue of Satan. And in order to show his believers how much he loved them, he says, I will make them bow down. There is no other physical thing you can do to show reverence to someone else higher than bowing down at someone's feet. And he said, I will make them bow down to show how much I have loved you all. To prove that to you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. He's saying, I know life has been really rough. I know this sucks. But you are enduring, and you're enduring patiently. You're not kicking your feet through it. You're being patient. You understand what's going on. Then he goes in and talks a bit more about the end times. 
And you all just heard that I thought the end times was an earthquake in Taiwan. So uh, we won't go into that too much. It's an entire sermon on its own, and people have very different perspectives on what scripture means. Uh, but just know, he talks about that, right? He talks about him coming again. I think the most important part of him talking about coming again is that he tells them in verse 12, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write them on the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven. Now think about this. These are people who are used to seeing everything devastated. Imagine the imagery that they got when they see something that says, not only will you be in the house of God, the new Jerusalem, you will be a pillar of that place. Imagine that. No more devastation. You are going to hold the house up. And the, in Turkey, present day, in this town, there actually is, there's still two pillars standing for a Christian church that's from this era. Uh, it's not by happenstance. Pillars within the church. They had every reason to fear. Everyone found it bizarre looking back why people even lived there. But they, they didn't leave. Uh, Jesus knew it. He knew all about them. Do you want to know basically the only reason the church in Philadelphia ended? They were killed. They were actually martyred for their faith. People really didn't like them. They wanted them to leave. The entire church that Jesus found important enough to write specifically to was martyred for their faith. And now present day we feel like we're being persecuted when someone says happy holidays to us. We have no idea what that's like. And honestly, if we lived back then, I don't think we would have been martyred. I don't. Not because people wouldn't like us, because I really don't think they would have. But I think we would have left after the first earthquake. Or when the synagogue of Satan said, bye-bye, we'd also say bye-bye. We wouldn't be around to be martyred. They would have won already. The church wouldn't have continued there. Thank God it was them instead of me. You know, Christians, because they, had, we, they were given such a mission, you know, be in this city in Turkey and take it, my gospel as far as you can east. Traveling was hard back then. Take it as far as you can east. Christians did whatever they could to share the gospel. And I feel like now we do whatever we can to keep it to ourselves. One of my favorite podcasts, and probably many of yours, uh, is The Liturgist. And I was listening to a recent episode as I was preparing for this sermon. And one, of the, one part of it really struck me when I was thinking about this concept of fear and what that means for the gospel. And it, it says, the gospel is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. And the gospel is not a license to claim the world for yourself. The gospel is a demand to lay down what you have for the healing of the world in anything less is not good news. And neither earthquakes or synagogues or Satan, synagogues of Satan will suffice for a good excuse to keep it to ourselves 
and the church in Philadelphia got that. But we do this all the time. I feel like Christians now are more known for their fear and not their love. And apparently, the Washington Post feels the same way. Uh, a few years ago, there was an article out about how fearful we are as a people group, as Christians. And this excerpt uh, kind of explains behind uh, that thought process. And it says, For believers in a religion whose scriptures teach compassion, we're a breathtakingly cruel bunch. Christians today seem governed by fear. Theologians as well as psychologists will tell you that there is a spiritual peril in acting out of fear and a sense of danger. Fear drives us into patterns of reasoning that are far from reasonable, but more akin to reactionary patterns, patterns of cause and effect. And fear moves us away from the core of Christianity, which is love. The fears that Christians are perpetuating are actually causing more people to leave the church, not flock to it. That is to say, Christian, a Christian's response to the misperceived crises have become, in fact, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Thank you, Washington Post. Saying what maybe we can't say for ourselves. This is a secular newspaper talking about our faith because the world is watching us. What we do doesn't just stay here. Christians should be the most fearless people on the planet, but we're not. The light of the world lives in us and we hide it. You name it, Christians are afraid of it. Outside of the Starbucks cups, we have other religions, uh, ideologies of the world that don't match ours. The concept of even getting out of our bubbles, right? We're fearful of that. We think the concept of getting hurt at any time means that something has gone wrong. Not the world is broken. Something has gone wrong. We should fear this situation. And now there's no need for me to stand up here and list all the ways that our fears have transcended into either action or inaction for our churches and culture because I don't think that's going to do us any good. Because the thing is we can all think of ways that our church has hurt, um, our ways, ways that the church should have acted and didn't. But the thing is... All of those things we think about, all of those things that we're fearful of, start with us. If we want to change culture and be a fearless bunch, it starts with each of us deciding that on our own. We can't wait for the church to do it. Now, I also don't want anyone to walk away from this sermon thinking that I'm preaching that there aren't real things to be afraid of. There certainly are, because we legitimately have white people running around this country killing and in some cases slitting the throats of young black women like Nia Wilson just because she was breathing. Okay? That's real. <laughs> people have got it in their minds that white people are the, the chosen ones, yet we say we follow a Jesus who is not white. Okay? Th that, those are real things. Uh, I'm not talking about the daily terrors that some people are forced to encounter. I'm talking about the reaction of those daily terrors on our hearts. Because they are going to happen. We need to figure out how we're going to respond to them. And also a side note, what happened to Nia was fueled absolutely by hate. But before we, as a group, distance ourselves from that type of hate, uh, we should know that the hate that fueled that man to attack her uh, sprouted from a ridiculous fear, right? Uh, placed in a deep spot of insecurity, a place that love did not live. 
And that fear transforms into hate faster than we can catch it. Right? But fear turning into hate is an entirely separate sermon, so I'm just going to leave it there. Please know, though, that those are two different things. Sin exists. We have to figure out how we respond to it. Because when the church is fearless towards the things that are eternal, that's when people are going to know that we are right about our Jesus. The commands to rejoice and to not be afraid are said more times in Scripture than any other command. In fact, this book, when Jesus you know, tells John, hey, I'm here, I need you to write some stuff to my churches, the first thing that he says to John is, don't be afraid. Because he knows John's probably going to freak out. At this point, he's an old man. Um, he's one of the only disciples that lives and dies what we assume to be a, a regular death. Everyone else, tragic. Go, go and read about them. Um, but he's on this island, this Greek island of Patmos, which is just west of Turkey, right? And he's there, and he's, he's hearing this, and he's, he's older at this point, and he hears that Jesus wants to write to his churches, and he still has the energy to get up and go and deliver them, hand-deliver them to these people, right? That's, a, that's an ounce of fear, fearlessness that we, that we don't have. Do not be afraid. The church needs to be the hospital for the sick. Scripture tells us that. But we're bringing people into our doors without having the medicine to heal them because we haven't been healed ourselves. Psalm 23 is one of my favorite parts of Scripture because it really brings me back to the core of who Jesus is, our good shepherd. And, and this is a perfect example of, of how we turn away. You know, God is, is ushering us to this table He's telling us, I'm going to seat you at a table before all of your enemies. This seat is for you. And even though you're in front of all of your enemies, I'm going to make sure that goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life. And you know what? After those days, you're going to dwell in my house forever. And the entire time, we, instead of focusing on that plan, we're worried about what everyone else is eating at the table. We can't keep our focus on him because we've made it all about ourselves. When we start understanding this type of love, we quit praying for safety all the time. Praying about how God could use us instead. How are you going to use me to bring your kingdom to earth? Those are the people I want to be around, right? Not the safety police. I want to be the person who thinks, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? Kill me? Fine. Someone take care of Rosie. That's it. That's, I already have a plan. Right? It's past this place. What are they going to do to me? So how do we become these fearless people, this fearless church, this church that stays in a city despite everything telling it to leave? The synagogue of Satan, the actual earth saying, Go. And we stay. I think in order to know that, we should go back to the church in Philadelphia. What did they get right? You know, I think there are so many things we can say here. They were obedient. They were faithful. They were resilient. They were fearless, right? And all of those things are good and true. But to name any of those things in a silo on their own, I think cheapens what was actually happening. Because none of those things are possible without one thing. And they got this right. You know, they were one of the only churches that got this right. 
And so many past and present churches have forgotten this. And this is it, everyone. This is the magic you came for. You ready? The thing that the church in Philadelphia got right is that they knew, they deeply knew in the pit of their stomach, in the core of their being, that they were loved by God. That's it. That's the only difference between this church and the others that failed. Everywhere life was hard. They didn't have much. Everywhere. This was the difference. This was the defining difference that changed everything. They understood and accepted that love. So it didn't matter what was happening to them in this world. They knew whose they were. And they embraced that love. That's the only thing that will change us. Perfect love casts out all fear. Not some, all. And I know what you're probably thinking, Angela. Ridiculous. Um, Of course we know God loves us. Of course, God loves us all. But do you know that? Do you? Do you really know that God loves you? You know, I know, I have the privilege of knowing so many of our stories in this church. I know how hard it is for some of us, including myself, to love me, right? Think how much harder it is to accept love from someone else if we can't even love ourselves. What are we missing out on? And in case we've forgotten what love actually means, let's go back to scripture where it tells us in 1 Corinthians. We are told there that love is patient. It is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. It does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It never fails. Do you know these truths about God's love for you? Do they ring true to you at all when you think how you are his beloved? If we knew these to be true about our relationship with God, we'd see the world differently. We would. There's no denying that. And I think often what we hear is people, you know, praising God when they get blessings. And then when as they always do, we don't go to God. And people will often claim that initially as selfishness, of not thinking about what we can do and just running away from God when things go bad. And I think there was a time in my life where I would agree with that, but I, I know too many people's stories to now think that that's true. I think what's really happening is something so much deeper. Uh, we've been raised on this concept this religion uh, of deeds-based, you know, giftings, deeds-based blessings. And it's not true. And so when we don't get those things, we think not only the situation is broken, I am broken, God doesn't love me. That's where it goes real quick. We can't separate those things. 
So of course we're praising God when things are good because we think we've done something for things to be good. When really, no. You think about the way that the disciples did everything they could to get the gospel out and they were all martyred. Some of them hung upside down on a cross and beheaded. Right? That's not what this is about. Deeds-based system. We have forgotten that our good, good God is after our hearts in this broken world. We have forgotten that we are told there will be trouble, but we should what? Take heart because he has overcome the world. And if he is in us, so have we. That's it. Because in reality, earthquakes happen because our world is aching, not because we deserve it. Sin happens in churches because the devil, whew, tricky man. If he can't make you sin, he'll come into your house and change it. Happens all the time. It's not because we are not loved. And until we actually get that, we will continue to either just fight that concept of even knowing God or run as far away as we can from him. It will never stop. So what is it going to take for you, child and image bearer of God, to realize how much you are loved? What is it going to take for you to walk into his presence with great joy, regardless of circumstance? What is it going to take for you to know that you are his beloved? When does that sink? I don't know what it's going to take for you. But I do know that you've got to figure it out because the world is depending on us. And I really think that that's the heart of our problem. Without knowing we are loved unconditionally, we live lives of fear. We live lives of what's going to happen next. This world is broken, people. Bad things are going to happen every day. We are children of the light. We see a place that is restored. We come from that lens, but we can't unless we know how deeply loved we are and that he wants to restore this place for us. We stay in our little boxes because we're afraid of a vengeful God. Meanwhile, that God has been outside of the box waiting to live wild and free with you. I think there's also this desire for us to read about the church in Philadelphia and look for the trick. Look for the thing they were doing that no other church was doing, that we could just quickly switch and do the tactic that helped them persevere. So I think for many of us, it is disappointing to find out that it's just accepting God's love. That's it. That's the core of absolutely everything. We don't get that right. We have nothing. I think that's why Jesus spoke to them. I think that's why he's speaking to us now. That's why he wrote to them. We need to know this too, because so many people don't. Once we accept that in the deepest part of our being, it makes keeping his word and following his commandments nothing, right? We do that out of joy and great pleasure, because he loves us. And I don't know what it's going to take, but we've got to figure it out. So here's just uh, a few things to ponder as you leave tonight. Uh, When you think about God's love for you, do the echoes of 1 Corinthians play in your heart? 
do they? And it does that love make you feel fearless? If either of those answers are no, do not leave that space. You stay there until you figure it out. We need you to figure it out. The church in Philadelphia knew both of those things to be true. And you know what? It didn't change anything about their circumstance. Remember, they were ushered in to uh, essentially a coliseum and killed. But it changed everything about their perspective on their circumstance. Because they were living for a world that is restored and following the king who is good. Perfect love casts out all fear. And yesterday I was talking to a friend about this sermon and in reference to the letter praising the church in Philadelphia, he looked at me and said, Isn't it amazing that the book we learn to be fearful of is actually all about how much God loves us? Isn't that incredible? We're so fearful of this book of Revelation that we don't even pick it up. Meanwhile, there are love letters for us that we have been missing out on. Don't miss out anymore. Ponder those questions because figuring it out will change absolutely everything. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this space. We thank you for time in your presence. And I just pray that it doesn't end here, Lord. I pray that you sit on the hearts of everyone who really doesn't know the answer to those questions, really feels uncertain about how you feel for them. And I just pray that you bear hug them until they accept that love, Lord. Do what you do best. Overwhelm us with your presence. In your precious name we pray. Amen.